And so with that, uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 18, covering verses 15 to 35. I titled this morning's message, Dealing with a Sinning Brother and Forgiving Him. That's a long title, isn't it? But when I started thinking about the topic of what we were going to be covering today on Mother's Day, I started thinking, you know, wow, that's kind of a heavy topic. Dealing with a sinning brother and forgiving him. It's not really a popular subject, is it? It's not, it probably wouldn't make the top 10 best messages in the church today. As a matter of fact, it probably wouldn't even make the top 50. Because there's a lot of churches that don't want to deal with Matthew 18 and the dealing with sin within the church and the forgiveness that needs to come along with that. But I think all of you know that the style of teaching here at Calvary Chapel Fellowship is book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse type teaching and you should like that because it it doesn't allow me to sidestep these things I can't say well you know what I'm not going to deal with this this is kind of a negative kind of a message you know I don't want to I don't want to get into that and so I could sidestep it but when you teach in this fashion I have to deal with every subject it just so happens that it falls on Mother's Day but That's God's timing, and God has a purpose for us this morning. For those of you who were with us here in the very beginning, we actually started in December of 2014, the Gospel of Matthew, over at the school. But I shared in the very beginning, as we began to get into this Gospel of Matthew, that The ministry of Jesus consisted of a teaching ministry. It was also a preaching ministry and also a healing ministry. Those were the three main areas of ministry for our Lord as he began his earthly ministry, those last three and a half years of his life. After Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist... We're told that he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. We're told that after he came out of the wilderness that he departed and he came to the region of Galilee where he began to preach. And we read in chapter 4 verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are the first words of ministry and Jesus preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He began his ministry with preaching. In chapter 4, verse 23, we read that Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. There's his ministry there in verse 23. In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus gave probably the greatest teaching that we find in all of the Gospels. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it it consisted of those kingdom rules, what Jesus taught his disciples. In chapter 8 and 9, Jesus, or Matthew actually began to focus upon the healing ministry of Jesus. And those two chapters really just consist of from one healing and one miracle to the next. In chapter 10, we see a turning point in Jesus' ministry where he began to now focus more on the disciples than he was on the multitudes that were following after him. He began to teach them lessons in faith, and we've gone through a number of those already. He began to teach them the principles of the kingdom. He also showed them by his example what faith could accomplish. Remember when he fed the 5,000, and then he fed the 4,000. Those were all for the benefit of the disciples, so they could see what it was to operate in faith. These were lessons in faith for them. Remember when he came walking out onto the Sea of Galilee as they were in that storm? And Jesus came walking literally out onto the water. Lessons in faith. He was confronted in front of the disciples many times by the religious leaders. And he showed by example how he would deal with each one of those situations. All of this was for the benefit, really, of his disciples. They were learning from him, from the master, as he taught them and showed them by example. That's just a few of the lessons that the disciples were learning. In Matthew 13, Matthew dedicated that whole chapter just to teaching. The the parables of Jesus, Jesus teaching in parables, and he taught them things concerning the kingdom of heaven, all for their benefit. From chapters 14 to 17, Jesus continued to teach and to reveal his Messiahship to his disciples. This was all preparation. This is a three and a half year period that he spent with these men. And it was all preparation leading up to the time that he was going to commission them to go into the world and to take the gospel to this world. And then he was going to ascend and leave this world and leave it to them. All preparation, all discipleship. We saw how Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And then Jesus transfigured himself in front of Peter, James, and John, revealing his deity to them there on that mountain. We know that Jesus had a special place for Peter, James, and John. In the whole scope of things, he had a special place for them. Remember, he took Peter and he actually performed a miracle by producing a coin in a fish's mouth to pay Peter's and Jesus' temple tax. Lessons. Jesus was teaching his disciples truths that they needed to know that was going to be important for them to know as they were going to be taking the gospel forward. And that leads it, led us to chapter 18 where the disciples even had more lessons to learn. It started in verse 1 
Look at your Bibles. With the disciples coming to Jesus with a question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responded to them, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't the answer that the disciples were expecting. They, they, weren't, they might have thought he was going to actually say. It wasn't the answer that they expected. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus went on to warn anyone who would cause one of these little ones to sin. He takes this child and sets this child in the midst of them as a picture, as an example of the humility of a child so that he can show who's the greatest. And then he begins to broaden it. And he begins to say and to warn if anyone causes one of these little ones to sin. It's a warning that it would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That's harsh. That's radical. That's God's judgment against sin. God is serious about his children. He's serious about you and your walk with him. He's serious about the compromise in your life. He's serious about his protection over you. You're his child. He's serious about these things. He went on to pronounce a woe upon anyone by whom the offense comes. If you offend one of these little ones, if you're the cause to cause that one to turn away from me and to follow after your sin, that you're being an example before them, woe to you. God watches over us, doesn't he? The things that are done in secret, the things that people do in this world and the things that even Christians do in secret, they're someday going to be revealed. They're going to be brought to light. None of it is going to go unnoticed. There's nothing that we can hide from the Lord. These things will be brought to light. And God will judge. God will judge those things. He also warned about the serious consequences of sin for those who would live and practice it. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to us as Christians. Jesus wanted them to know the seriousness of sin. How how serious is sin to you? The seriousness of sin requires serious measures to get rid of it. That's what he talked about, plucking out your eye. He didn't mean literally, but take every measure and every step to get rid of it. He's speaking to us as Christians. Sin is serious. The consequences for sin is serious. But in verses 8 and 9, it says it's because of sin 
that many will be cast into everlasting hell fire. It's because of those sins that we even toy with that people are going to be cast into hell. That's the judgment of God. That's what will come. In verses 10 to 14, Jesus revealed his great love and his compassion for these little ones. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, because your heavenly Father, he sees. He knows. And he's aware of every situation that you endure here on earth. He's a very compassionate and loving God towards you and I. More than we at times can even really comprehend how patient he is with us, how loving he is towards you, how compassionate, how much pity he has towards you. When you're struggling and when you're having a, a, you know, he's very compassionate. When he sees those that stray, when he sees believers, uh, they, they backslide or they go astray, they become a prodigal. He tells his disciples something about his very nature in these words. In verses 12 to 13, he says, What do you think? He's asking them a question. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one who is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. That's the heart of our Lord. Towards that one lost sheep, some of you have gone astray in your walks with Christ. And he drew you back. He sought you out. He found you. That's that's the very nature and love and compassion of our Lord. He's wanting his disciples to know this. They need to be like that. We finished in verse 14 a couple of weeks ago. Even so... It is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the heart of our Lord. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. For those of you that are here this morning that might have some prodigals, keep praying. Keep committing them to the Lord, your heavenly Father that loves them. Keep praying and interceding for them. Don't give up on them. Why? Because your heavenly Father is patient. And He's seeking out those that have gone astray. And He's not willing that any would perish. I know there's some of you that are here this morning that have family that don't know Christ. And you've prayed and prayed and prayed and in a sense begged God to save them. And they're still not saved. 
Don't stop. You have a compassionate Heavenly Father that is very patient and He knows the timing and He hears your prayers. And every single prayer that you lift up in that fashion before the Lord, you can be assured of this, that it's according to God's will. He's not willing that any would perish. That includes every one of your loved ones that you've been praying for. It's something of the heart of God that we need to know and be reminded of. This morning, though, we're going to continue in verse 15 to the end of this chapter where Jesus is going to give his disciples instructions on how to deal with a brother who has sinned against you. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had a brother or sister in Christ sin against you, violate you in some way, do something that, that you didn't like? How do you deal with it? What's the right way? But he's also going to continue in this chapter to teach his disciples a lesson on forgiveness, on extending mercy, on extending compassion, even to those who have sinned against you. In verse 15, Jesus moves from the brother who offends in the previous verses to the brother who is sinned against. We could actually divide the rest of this chapter into two parts. Verse 15 to 20, making every effort to win back a brother who has sinned against you. And then verses 21 to 35, Jesus is going to instruct them about the readiness to forgive and how often we should forgive. Look at your Bibles at verse 15. Moreover, whenever you see that word, in other words, he's saying there's more that I want you to learn, men. There's more that I want to instruct you in. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Let me start out by saying that this principle that we're reading in Matthew 18 is often not followed very well by the body of Christ. It's often not done in this way. That's why Jesus needs to give this kind of instruction. Look what he says. Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. But notice what he says, between you and him alone. There's the principle. Between you and him alone alone. The problem is, is that often we find ourselves as Christians talking to other people, going out and in a sense gossiping about that person before we ever talk to them. We go out and, and, and find those people that we can communicate with, that we can talk with, 
Sometimes we're just saying, would you pray for me? I've got this real struggle going on with so-and-so. And you've already just kind of put it all out there before you've ever gone to that person to say anything. We're getting away from Jesus' principle. He says, first go to him alone. Just you and him. Or you and her. There's another problem that Christians often face when it comes to this area of confronting somebody that has sinned against you is they're afraid to go. Have you ever found yourself a little bit intimidated over the thought of going to a brother or sister and bringing up something that was uncomfortable? I could take that outside of the church here and I could move it into your homes between husband and wife. I could move it into relationships with other believers outside the church. I could bring it into the church here. But again, we often find ourselves resisting. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to go and bring, in, bring those things up. But what happens when we don't follow the principle of our Lord here? Well, then there's no fruit. Then, then in a sense, we're like kicking it under the rug and letting it go. And then, and then we take it another step further and we begin to avoid them. I, I, you know, I, you know, I just avoid them. I, I just don't talk to them about I, you know, I, And when I see them, I just walk the other way. That's not how the Lord has instructed us to deal with those things. You see, the whole purpose of all of this is restoration. What God's wanting to do is he's wanting to redeem something. Somebody that's been hurt, he's wanting to turn it right again. He's wanting forgiveness to come into the midst of it. That there might be healing on both sides. It is uncomfortable to go confront a brother or sister that's sinned against you. But Jesus says we should do it. And but here's the remainder of what we're going to learn about it. We need to do it in the right way. You see, there's a lot of Christians that have done it in the wrong way. You ever done that with your spouse? Done it in the wrong way? And gone and, and, and thinking you're going to confront this. But you didn't do it in the right way. That's what's important. Jesus says, if you go to the person alone and that person acknowledges his fault, then it's just between you and that person. You see the benefit in that? It's just between you and that person. You haven't said a thing to anybody else. In other words, some good's coming out of this or some good could come out of this. It can be settled right there, in other words. You, can, you, you bring it up, and they say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I did that. Would you forgive me? And all of a sudden, there's this restoration, there's this forgiveness that just happened 
And it's a done deal. It's all over. Or it should be all over. There's another danger. We go and we go alone. We stand in front of that brother or sister. We, 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 we tell them what was the issue. And there's forgiveness that takes place. But then afterwards we part. And then we go out and find another brother or sister that we're close with and go, you know, just pray for me. I'm, I, I'm still a little bit strong. I had to confront so-and-so over this issue. And, you know, yeah, there was forgiveness, you know. But we didn't keep it there and there alone. We took it outside and it, and it became now something. And, and a lot of times those things are all under the banner. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? And really it's, that's code for, I just want to talk about it. We need to be careful. Sometimes we say, I told someone else because I was seeking counsel from them. I'm just out seeking counsel of how to deal with this brother or sister. So that's why I went out and talked to them before I went to the person. I wanted them to pray for me about the situation. But you see, there's no real benefit that comes from that. Yes, counsel is good, and we should seek counsel. But be careful that we don't get outside of the way the Lord instructed us to handle these kinds of situations. Just like our Lord does with us, we need forgiveness, don't we? He is just quick to forgive when you come with a heart of repentance before him. Just like that, the Lord forgives. And not only does he forgive, he forgets. Do you realize that? He forgets. He says, I remember it no more. But so often we hang on and we don't. We don't forgive. We don't forget. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will cover a multitude of sins. A Christian who extends fervent love for his brother is not a person that delights in exposing their sin. You know, that's not really real agape love when we seek to expose people's sins. You see, covering a multitude of sin doesn't mean the sin didn't happen that it's not real. But I am not going to seek to expose it. It'd be like you talking about your spouse to somebody else. Oh, so-and-so, my husband, my wife, you know. And you're exposing those sins and those things to somebody else. True love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't want to highlight it and bring it out so that others can see. It doesn't delight in that. And yes, our sin gets exposed, 
It gets shouted from the housetops when we try to hide it. But do you know that our Lord doesn't delight in exposing it? He wants you to know that he wants to forgive you. He wants to forget. And he wants to bring that restoration between you and him together. That's how we should be with one another. But look what he goes on to say, because there's other implications here, for the one who will not hear or not listen. Not everyone, if we were to go to that brother or sister and say, you've sinned against me, not everyone's going to agree with you. They're not all going to go, okay, yeah, I see that. As a matter of fact, there's going to be sometimes they're not going to agree with what you're bringing before them. Look what he says in verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. You see, there's benefits sometimes in having another person, one or two more that are in that particular setting. There's sometimes a benefit in that. Well, what's the benefit? Well, sometimes it's accountability. Sometimes it's, it's the other parties that weren't directly sinned against themselves that are arbitrators that are actually able to sit there in the midst of the conversation and really be able to determine what's going on here. You see, sometimes the person that is alleging that you've sinned against me might be coming with a wrong motive and a wrong heart in his approach towards that person. And the persons that are sitting there hearing that might be able to say, you know what, I think you're a little bit over the top. I think you're a little bit out of balance in what you're... You know, they're able to, in a sense, be a mediator. And so there's some practical things that are happening here that the Lord is giving instruction Sometimes when that person doesn't agree with you, when there's other people that are in the room that are saying, you know what, brother, sister, I think what you have done is wrong. That person is more apt to go, okay, all right, okay. If it's just coming from the want, yeah, but I don't know about that. And so there is a benefit sometimes in having it. But here's the goal. The goal in all of this in all of this instruction and what every, uh, everything that the Lord is telling his disciples is reconciliation, forgiveness, uh, to, to, to bring that relationship and make it right. That's what our Lord is wanting to accomplish in it. Jesus goes on to take it even further in verse 17. It says that if he refuses to hear you, tell it to the church. This is like the third step. Tell it to the church, but if he refuses even to hear the church, 
Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Man, this is harsh. I mean, this is, you know, this kind of a, this is the things that we don't always even like to talk about as Christians. This is only to take place after the first two steps have failed. That anyone would ever take it before the church or to go before the church and, and to bring up something like it. It's because God won't let, he won't listen. He didn't listen. To, he, he didn't listen when we had a, a, a few people. You know, and he continues. Jesus says, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. In other words, sometimes you've got to let him go. What's interesting is that this word church here, which is only the second time in Matthew's gospel that it's being used, remember that the church, ecclesia, has not actually uh, been developed yet. The church, in a sense, was the disciples and the followers of Christ at this point. The church wasn't going to really be established until Acts chapter 2. But this is the beginning of, within the disciples and within the church, what was going to become the church, the steps and the principles to reconcile between a brother or a sister. Jesus goes on to say, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The disciples understood this whole binding and loosing thing because it was the authority that was given to the priest in the temple. They could take the law, and they, they could take the, the violations of the law, and, and they could have the authority to be able to say that this person has violated the law. And they could also have the authority to say that if you will do this and make this and do this, you can have reconciliation. You can be made and brought right again. Binding and loosing. They have that authority as priests within the temple and with the people of God. The disciples understood this term about binding and loosing. Jesus had given this authority to Peter of binding and loosing back in chapter 16 of Matthew's gospel here. But here, Jesus here mentions it in the context of the church in verse 17, which tells me that in the context here, he's given this authority to the church to exercise judgment uh, in, in these matters. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let it be to you. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Those were not the tax collectors. weren't the people you, you like. You know, a heathen, a tax collector. When the church prayerfully, and I would say according to God's word, binds disciplinary action upon a person, that action is honored in heaven. 
That's what I believe he's saying here. When a church in their authority takes the responsibility to administer a discipline within the church, and it's according to the will of God in heaven, then it's honored in heaven. And God has given that authority. We do need to be careful when we... People have taken this binding and loosing thing to a whole other level at times. We need to be careful with that whole thing because sometimes people want to say, you know, whatever you bind here on earth, will, you know, loose in heaven. And they take it like, I'm going to just tell God what to do. And if I, you know, bind it here on earth, it's going to be loose. And God's going to do what I, you know. Here's the key to all this. It has to be by the will of God. It has to be God's will. We are lining up with the will of heaven in what we're doing. And that is what he gives the church the authority to be able to do. It's the authority that he gave to Peter to go out and take the gospel of this world and to tell somebody that their sins have been forgiven. He gave him the authority to be able to say that. The authority given of binding and loosing here, I believe, is church authority. Heaven agrees with the decision when it's done in the right way. And there are churches that do things in the wrong way. They don't handle these situations in the right way. And I don't believe that God honors that. But he does when they do it according to his will. It's important for us to know that when these matters happen, that it's not good to be a person that acts like nothing's happened. You know, somebody wrongs you, somebody sins against you, acting like nothing's wrong. The reason why is because if you're, if you do that, and if you do that, if you, let's say if you do that at home with your spouse, and you never bring anything up, you know, whatever, and you just don't deal with it, is there any benefit that really is coming? There's no benefit within the church. There's no benefit within relationships if we're the kind of person that just wants to kick it under the rug and to not to deal with it. I think it's important. That's why Jesus is bringing this out to them. Again, in verse 19, Jesus says, Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now some have looked at this particular scripture and thought that this is a new subject, that he's now going into the subject of prayer. And... I see it more, and there are others that believe this way also or interpret it this way, that the context, I believe, fits with what we're reading here in verse 19 and 20. That yes, it does have to do with prayer, but it's not to be a a set of scriptures just strictly now dealing with the issue of prayer. When two come together in his name, and that's what's key, seeking God in the matters that are before them, they can be assured that God hears them. That's what's happening here. Two or three to come together in his name. And they can be assured that when they're making these decisions, 
when they're, when they're talking about how to deal in this situation, that God is in the midst and that God hears. God is the one that is, imparts wisdom. He's the one that, uh, that we should seek to call upon in these situations. That we should run to him and say, God, give me wisdom in this situation. Let me hear from you. How I would speak and what, you know, what I should say, how we should we'd do. Why? Because, God, I want reconciliation. I want forgiveness. I want this to be brought back right. That's my intentions. And if we approach these things with that kind of a heart, and we have two or three people agreeing in that prayer, and you bring them together, God works. But now look what follows, and I'll go quickly through this last part. Now look what follows in this next section, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? There's Peter again. He always, you know, he's got those things to say, doesn't he? How often? Peter is probably thinking in his mind that this number seven, surely forgiving somebody seven times is sufficient. Surely it must be. That's why he threw out this this number seven. Because you see, there's a lot of the Jews that taught and believed that forgiving somebody three times was all that was required. Just three. In other words, it's like three strikes and you're out. That was the mindset. And so Peter's saying, seven? God, he just superseded all of the teaching and all that he'd ever heard. Surely that would be enough seven times. And Jesus says to him in verse 22... I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's 490 times. Wow. How do you think that sounded in the ears of the disciples? Up to 490 times. But do you think that Jesus is saying that after 490 times that you have forgiven, that you're not obligated to forgive anymore? No. Even after 490, forgive, forgive. It's an exaggerated way to say that you need to keep forgiving. When you come to the Lord in your own personal walk. And you say, Lord, would you forgive me? What do you expect that he's going to do? Do you expect that the Lord is going to forgive? When you admit your sin before him, 
Are you believing in your heart and in your mind? 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to continue to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Don't you hold on to that? I think we all do. Some of us struggle with forgiveness. Has he really forgiven me? I keep doing it and I keep doing it. Uh, this is a, uh, look how many times I've fallen. How many of you could say even this morning that there's a particular sin in your life that you've done more than 490 times? Do you have any one sin? I would say that I have a, 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 probably more than one, more than I would even like to even imagine. That I've probably done in my life more than 490 times. Do you have any of those things in your life? And then when you run to the Lord, are you expecting that he's still going to forgive you or is it three strikes you're out? I give up on this. I can't do it. The stages to forgiveness when we've been wronged or sinned against and the person asks for your forgiveness is that you should immediately and from your heart forgive them. If your spouse comes to you and says, would you forgive me? Are you quick to forgive? Yes. I, I forgive you. Right? Yes, I do. And, and, and in that forgiveness and from that heart, are, are you sincere and do you forget it? Do you let it go or do you drum it back up again? Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And then here's the key to the whole thing. Just as God in Christ forgave you. That's how we're able to do it. You say 490 plus times, I can't do it. He did it for you. The second thing about forgiveness is that forgiveness can happen in our hearts even if the person has not yet repented of his or her sin to you. You can have forgiveness in your heart towards them. You don't have to carry around the baggage. You can say, Lord, I forgive, but you know, when that person comes and that opportunity comes for reconciliation and forgiveness, then that's what's going to bring it complete. The Bible says that we should speak the truth in love. Have you ever had to do that? Speaking the truth in love? Because you love them so much you're willing to say something that will be hard for you to say, but I need to say it. That's important at times to do. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 17, 3, he says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's simple. And as soon as that person apologizes and confesses their sin, 
I should be ready to forgive. Jesus says in Luke 17, 4, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, Jesus says you shall forgive him. Try to put that one around your head. You just came and asked me to forgive you, and I did. And you just did it again. And again. I mean, to be honest with you, when I read that, that's hard for me. Is that hard for you? To think that somebody could ask for forgiveness, you forgive them, and then they do it again, and now you want me to forgive, and then they do it again, you want me to do it. That's hard. Come on. Those of us that are married, it's hard. But Jesus says you should do it. Then Jesus gave a parable, which is a story. He's going to warn about the consequences of an unforgiving spirit. Look at your Bibles, verse 23. Therefore, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts. That accounts is a bad debt. He wanted to settle these accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I kind of tried to figure where this was all out. It has to do with this, if it's gold, silver, copper. But the sheer fact that this is a, a weight of measure, of weight. And that 10,000 talents is a huge number. We're talking about, possibly in today's standard, in the millions. We're talking about a huge, massive debt. 10,000 talents. It's one of those ways that you could put it that would say, it's nearly impossible for me to repay this debt. That's the kind of picture that the Lord wanted to put into their minds. But let me ask you this morning, how great is your debt towards him? Towards him. How great is your debt towards him? Do you see what he sees? Uh, what, how great is your debt? You see, when you realize your great debt towards the one that has saved you, this is going to be how Jesus says you can forgive. Verse 25 says, But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will will pay you all. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and he released him and forgave him the debt. That's when you came to Christ. That's what Christ has done in you, the complete forgiveness that he has done for you. He had compassion upon you. He released you. He set you free, liberty. 
and he forgave you of all of your debt. But that servant went out and found one of the fellow servants who owed him just a hundred denarii. By today's standards, that would have been like saying a few hundred bucks, a small amount. And he lays hands upon him and he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down at his feet and he begged him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you all. And when he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. I don't know how that works for him to throw him into prison till he can pay the debt, but he throws him into prison. He's angry. No compassion. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? just as I had pity upon you. And as his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures and until he should pay all that was due him, so my heavenly Father also will do to you. If, if each of you from his heart, do you see that in verse 35? If each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses, you see, it always comes down to the heart. It's a heart issue that, that keeps me from being able to forgive. I still have bitterness in my heart. I can't let it go. I won't let it go. God changed my heart. Jesus had given this instruction, this, this parable to his disciples in light of what we just read about how to deal with a brother that has sinned against you, the forgiveness that you should offer him, and then shows this contrast between this compassionate king and then his inability to even forgive even a small debt. Isn't that like how we are at times? We have been so greatly forgiven, yet we find it so hard to even forgive somebody for something that would be deemed as small. But I can't do it. It's our heart. Jesus had already taught us back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A heart of unforgiveness. God help us this morning. Maybe some of us are here this morning and we have bitterness in our heart towards our spouse, towards family members. Some of us, I hate to say that even on Mother's Day, might have some issues with our mothers. There might be all kinds of things that stir me. I knew when I was teaching on this subject of forgiveness, it could stir up a lot of hearts and emotions and thinkings within the church this morning. You see, forgiveness has to do with you understanding how great your forgiveness has been. 
It has to do with your spiritual growth and you growing and coming to a place where your pride doesn't stand in your way. doesn't hinder you. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. If you're unmerciful towards others, but want mercy from God, that doesn't seem right, does it? We choose to forgive from our heart. It's a choice we make. It's not always easy. We have to call upon the Lord to help us in that. God, I can't do this. I've been wronged, been hurt, and hurt, and hurt. I can't do it. But God, you're calling me to forgive, and I need your help. It requires humility. It requires you giving up your rights. It requires you letting go of pride. In that, God is able to work. God is able to say, you know what, now now you're getting to the place where I can work in you and, and I can bring about reconciliation and forgiveness between you. How many times should we forgive? Is there any sin that you've ever committed more than 490 times? We should ask ourselves that question. And if, if, if we say, you know what, yes, Lord, you've forgiven me much. Then you will be a person that will find it much easier to forgive, to humble yourself and to come before that person and ask for forgiveness. I'll close with this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. The Apostle Paul said this. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. He doesn't even leave it as an option. You must do. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.